Sin Essential Podcast. This is episode seven. Uh, we're going to be talking about our collective, one of our collective favorite movies of 2016, and uh, assessing where that falls in our sort of essential canon that we're defining on the website. Uh, my name is John Gilpatrick. Uh, I'm joined by Aaron Pinkston. Aaron, how you doing? Doing good. Uh, as as you all know, I'm I am one who dreams. So I'm glad that someone is out there finally speaking for me uh, in the form of Emma Stone. Uh, so you know, I feel like I have a renewed purpose for 2017 and beyond, and doing great. That's good. And somebody is finally speaking for me in uh, the form of Ryan Gosling, who is just like a stubborn son of a bitch. So, uh, <laughs> so that's good. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, how you doing? Uh, I'm feeling pretty great. I watched 2016 die on New Year's Eve. That was fun, wasn't it? (laughs) Cathartic. (laughs) (laughs) I saw somebody wrote uh, RIP 2016, 2016 to 2016. So that's good. So, uh, so yes, La La Land, if you couldn't uh, guess from our our banter up front, is uh, the film we're going to be discussing this week. And um, Aaron you wanted to sort of use this week, our first full week in 2017 to write about and examine one of 2016's best films. And we settled on La La Land. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how we came to that choice. And then um, since, you know, we all saw it for the first time within the last like two weeks, um, Mm -hmm. give us your sort of first impression on it. Well, um, we came to that choice because I chose it. (laughs) (laughs) um no but seriously uh like you said i wanted to take a look at at one of the the recent films that came out one of the 2016 films that came out that uh sort of was one of the consensus picks for at least one of the best films of the year and i thought with la la land just coming out in theaters uh it there was definitely a lot of attention being placed on the film. Um, there were a number of other candidates that I thought would have been great to do, but, but um, sort of a logistically for the availability at being in theaters now and still sort of a little fresh and people talking about it made sense that it, it would be uh, one of the better choices that we could do. And I actually chose it before I even saw the film, but I, I had a little faith in uh fellow critics and people who had seen it at other festivals or when it first came out in theaters. I had a little faith that uh, I think I thought that it it would have some fertile ground of of things that we can talk about. And uh, I think it delivers. Um, It's uh, obviously a very nostalgic film, uh, which I think is something we'll talk about a lot. There is a particular tone and feeling in the film that I think really strikes uh something in a lot of movie lovers and i think it's pretty easy to see that damien chazelle the director of the film is a a lover of not only music uh but of movies as well and whenever there's that much love going into a project i I think it it comes out and what you see on screen and makes for a very uh valuable viewing experience so i'm excited to talk about uh the movie today and your guys's thoughts and We'll, uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, cool. Sarah, what did you think uh, seeing La La Land? You saw it in theaters, I believe, just in the last few days, right? Yeah, I did. I saw it uh, just like a week ago. 
Um, and I'm pretty excited to fulfill the role of resident contrarian because <laughs> I thought it was fine okay. and not a whole lot more than that. <laughs> I thought it was, it's, it's pretty good and I like, I enjoyed it. I don't, I have a lot of thoughts that we can get into later on it about why I have more reservation and hesitation about it than maybe a lot of other people. Okay. That sounds fun. Um, I saw it, I've seen it twice now as of this recording, um, and uh, I'm a very big fan of it. It um, I wrote my top ten movies of 2016 list uh, recently, and La La Land was the last movie I saw before I wrote the list, and it uh, came in number three on my top ten. I really liked watching it a second time. I felt like the first time I was kind of swept up in the emotion. The, the second time I could kind of hone in on what exactly I felt like the film was trying to say, and I appreciated uh, sort of the structure a little bit more, um, which we can talk about. But um, I'm a big fan and uh, excited to talk about it. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, um, maybe you want to go watch it before you listen to the rest of this podcast, because I think we're going to get pretty heavy into spoilers. And normally that's not a major problem, because these movies are 30, 40 years old that we're talking about. But in this case, it's brand new, and we don't want to necessarily ruin it for you but um you know quick synopsis in case you're a uh a glutton for punishment and want to continue listening anyway uh emma stone is an aspiring actress and uh ryan gosling is sebastian who is a a big enthusiast of jazz music and uh, aspires to open up his own jazz club in LA and the two of them have a little bit of a rocky start to their relationship but eventually fall in love while they tap dance beneath the moonlight and uh and their relationship you know they kind of bring out both the best and the worst of each other I'd say in so much as uh they encourage each other to pursue their dreams but maybe a little bit single-mindedly and and perhaps they're a little unrealistic about what they can do and uh so the film follows that path to a, I think, natural and fitting and uh, lovely conclusion. But I guess where do we want to, Aaron, where do you want to start? Like, what's the thing that struck you most about watching La La Land? And, and what do you think that, like, what do you find most interesting about the film? Well, actually, what I what I find most interesting about the film is actually the ending. So let, let's hold off on that. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I read your piece tonight. <laughs> yeah, like, what you said um, previously about really diving into spoilers with this one, I think is important because uh, the ending of the film, I think is really interesting, especially in light of the idea that the film is so, if you want to be negative about it, derivative of films of of Hollywood classics, of of musicals, of romances, that it very openly on its sleeve, with a heart on its sleeve, uh, you know, uh, references in, in a number of different ways. So maybe let's, instead of starting with the ending, let's kind of, let's start with, uh, with that idea of nostalgia and, uh, the references that, that it makes. I know Sarah, I think what the piece that you're working on for this, site this week kind of touches, uh, on this idea a little bit. Um, yeah. so do, you, do you want to start? Sure. So basically something that I started working through, um, because I thought, I thought I would like it more than I did. I thought I would be a little more blown away by it, or at least I wanted to be. Um, So maybe I actually was a little bit more skeptical than I wanted to admit to myself going in to see it. 
And then I ended up coming away with a lot of questions about what I thought an homage was supposed to be and what I thought an homage needed to do in order for me to think that it was something special and not just like, hey, you know, all that's that stuff you like, I'm going to do that just like you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Look at me go. <laughs> uh, which can be enjoyable, but that, that there's something lacking from that then. So like, yeah, this is basically that's like the crux of my whole my whole article this week is that I think that I personally believe that homage needs to do more than just reference what has already come before. It needs to do something different. And if it doesn't, then I'm not sure. I think it can be enjoyable, but I'm not going to see it as anything special then because I'm like, yeah, I've seen Singing in the Rain and I saw Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So you did a very good job of being those movies but modern but you're not it's not different than those for me like I see it as like yeah that's really cool that you're inspired by that but you're not doing more you're not bringing something new to the table for me Mm -hmm. um and so I think that there's like room for the debate on that that like maybe that there's the case that homage doesn't need to do this extra thing so I don't know if you guys had strong opinions about it or if you thought about it before like can like homage just for homage's sake, like be something like really great and wonderful? Or do you think that maybe it does need to be something more? Or do you think that I'm totally crazy and that this movie does have something like extra to it that I'm missing? I think uh, the latter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. and, And certainly like there's a lot of homage in this movie, but I found that it was in service of something that was, interesting and it kind of gets at to what i'm writing about this week actually which is like watching this movie through the lens of like your generation um and because the first time i watched it i think i was probably a little bit closer to you actually sarah and i thought like that this was um i you know i wrote to aaron i was like i felt like this was like a movie that's like uh, speaking to millennials almost exclusively but because it's packaged in a way that will remind older viewers of these other movies that they can sort of wrap their arms around it too and then i watched Mm -hmm. it again and i sort of thought like this is interesting because i feel like I've only aged about four days, but I'm seeing it from the lens of maybe the older viewer now and and that maybe Chazelle is sort of being a little bit judgmental towards the characters and saying, look at how naive these people are. And then the ending is kind of the the cap to that, which is look at like they just missed what was right in front of them all this time. Um and so I think that what I found interesting about the movie was that, yes, it's, like, very old-fashioned, but I think that, like, it speaks to people no matter how old they are in different ways. And, I mean, maybe for some people that would be a negative because it's not, like, clearly, like, taking a side or anything like that, but I found that kind of interesting. Sarah, I think your sort of general thesis on, on homage there, uh, I think you're right. I think that... You know, it's not exactly the same, but, you know, over the past two decades or so, we've seen a lot of parody films that don't do much else than just sort of reference the text. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, those don't tend to be very uh, interesting. Um, The now satire and and parody is a little bit different than, than straight on homage, but I think it kind of plays in the same way. Though I, I got to say, I, I'm probably a little closer to, to what John is saying. 
I think it does do just a little bit more than it needs to uh, on its own merits. I'm not as hyperbolic maybe as, as John is on the film. I, I think, I think it's probably borderline top 10 for me um, of the year, but I think it has, uh, I think it does have enough there to, to really stand on its own. And I think what Chazelle does is use these movie references and then use a more modern, uh, using modern technologies, using modern filmmaking styles to really his best efforts in, in projecting what these sort of classic uh, film tropes are in more of a modern age. I guess maybe that's a little bit of what John is saying about this being a, a film that's really sort of speaking to millennial sensibilities, even though it's, it's sort of packaged like, you know, a classic Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie. So I, I, think, it, I think it really does a little bit more balancing than maybe you saw uh, in your first view, Sarah. Yeah, like if I had to compare this to a movie in recent memory, um, it reminds me a little bit too much of The Artist, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed when I saw it. And yeah. as we all know, got tons of Oscar buzz and also Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was five years ago. And can anybody even remember the last time you heard anything about it? Like, does anybody still talk about that movie? Because I kind of feel like they don't because all it did was just be a silent movie, like the silent movies that had existed before in more or less the exact same way without really doing a whole lot, which is fine. And that makes for like a really fun, enjoyable experience, especially like if you're somebody, you know, maybe like for, for the artist, if you're unfamiliar with silent film and like watching an older one is off putting to you, or like you're new to the big brassy Hollywood musical, like, and you so you're like, Oh, well maybe I could try La La Land. Cause it's at least mm-hmm. it's, it's fresh or whatever, but then I'm not, I'm not getting to the point where I see what's happening beyond that. Like, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we don't have to, to harp on that too much, but I did just kind of want to make that comparison to sort of illustrate where I feel like I'm coming from. Cause I'm not, I don't want to sound too much like I'm disparaging the movie. Cause I actually really like Damien Chazelle and I'm really excited to see whatever he does next. Cause I mm-hmm. love flash. That was one of my top three movies of that year. Like I loved it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's tons of skill and craft that went into this movie, but I'm just like more lukewarm. <laughs> that's that's fine. That's I mean, it's good to have differing opinions. I think the well, f- real quick, the next thing that Damien Chazelle is going to do is a Neil Armstrong biopic with Ryan Gosling. Well, that's gonna be interesting. I hope. Yeah, that that uh, maybe pushes him a lot of little out of his comfort zone, um, given that the three movies he has made have been strongly jazz influenced mm-hmm. um i didn't really think of the artist uh but maybe that's because i haven't really thought of the artist in a long time like <laughs> yeah. um but when you say that i i can i can absolutely see that really though i think what i think will stand will 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 let la la land stand at least a, a little better chance of standing that test of time is um just really the craftsmanship uh, that's on display in the film. And I, I really, I think that's what I most um, gravitate towards in, in thinking about the film is just the, the look of it. Uh, I think that the cinematography is some of the best of the year. I think the lighting effects that he uses are some of really just all time kind of level stuff. Um, 
especially with some of his spotlighting techniques and then some of the color palettes that he uses throughout the film. I think uh, some of that is reminiscent to films from the, the 50s. Um, you know, Hitchcock's Vertigo really comes to mind when you're thinking of mm-hmm. some of the the lighting, the color lighting he's using. Um, but it still kind of has... The way he's making the film, I think, is what makes it still feel a little fresh uh, in my mind because because it has it has a boldness to it. Um, and it, it's kind of weird to think, you know, how, if, you know, seeing this film and seeing it really is a bold piece of, of filmmaking and then kind of having to think, well, but a lot of these parts are from, you know, from the past. It, it's kind of a weird kind of way of thinking of the film, but, um, you know, but I think that the filmmaking is, is there. I sort of yeah. lost my point halfway through that. <laughs> there is um, filmmaking there and it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I felt like was taken right from, and I haven't seen Guy and Madeline on a park bench, but the whiplash mm-hmm. playbook with some of the like really quick cuts. Um, there's a few when, uh, uh, Seb is uh, introducing me at a jazz. I remember in the in the one jazz club, and, uh, and that was kind of fun to see. But also a lot more uh, slowed down. Uh, certainly, the long take in the beginning is noteworthy. Uh, you've got the opening musical sequence that appears to be one take. I read is actually th- three. There's two yeah, like, there's like whip cuts in there. Whip that, cuts, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, looked really cool and. Uh, and was fun to, to the first time I saw it. I, I actually, I you know, I, I hadn't read that much about the movie, um, and so I'm watching this and and sort of at some point realized like, okay, I don't think the camera cut, so I'm gonna like see how this goes. And the second time I watched it, I was uh, paying very close attention to try to find those cuts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have it down to three possibilities for two <laughs> cuts, so I need yeah. to watch it one more time and see if I can <laughs> to, to cut that other one out. Um, I think that's. That's a good transition to talk about some of the big set pieces in the film. Sure, yeah. um, one of the things that I really appreciated as a musical is there's a lot of diversity in the musical um, set pieces that, that are shown throughout the film. Um, and I, I think for some that has created a little bit of an imbalance in, in the film, which I can totally see. But you start off with this this sequence on the overpass, this huge number with, you know, 30, 40 performers dancing around these cars, uh, a really sort of upbeat, positive song. Uh, not long after, you have the second musical number, which is a, a very kind of uh, West Side Story-inspired, getting ready for the party scene with with Mia and her three roommates. Um, it's not as big a number, but it is also a very positive one, and, and they use the space of this Los Angeles apartment really well. It's sort of you know, whirring throughout the entire, throughout the entire apartment. Uh, and those are kind of the two biggest upbeat productions uh, throughout the film. And then most of the rest of the music is either just really jazzy, jazz inspired, or is a little bit more melancholy. Uh, and, and really the, the final set piece um, that you see is, is just Mia singing in an audition with literally nothing around her. Uh, it's just complete total darkness and the camera does sort of move around her, but contrasted to that opening number, it's, it's much less of a big Hollywood showpiece. So I think, 
I think a lot of the variance in the music that you get, and there's also a lot of just musical numbers without singing, which I think for some people might be lost, get lost in the shuffle. Um, of course, Ryan Gosling plays a lot of piano uh, in the film. Uh, Sebastian plays piano. Yeah, and actually plays, and, and you can, and it's shown in a particular way that you can tell he's he's uh, at least knows how to play along. So yeah, I think that that's a, a lot of. I'm not a big, huge musicals fan, but I think I really appreciated the breadth of, of different styles and, and different sizes of pieces that Chazelle put throughout the film. Yeah, uh, you know, your mileage may vary when it comes to musicals. I, I've been telling people that I know that I feel like you sh- you'll probably find something to enjoy in this regardless, because I just think that it's a little bit irresistible, despite my friend Sarah's... Uh, uh, resistance. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I guess if I want to put on sort of a, a more critical hat and, and understand why some people aren't embracing this as much as others, like, I think that it is maybe like a little bit too perfect. And Aaron, you talk about like, there's like a lot of variance in, in the music, musical numbers and all these scenes and, and all the colors that are perfectly contrasting each other. It's sort of like, you can tell that there's like been so much thought put into every single like minute detail in the frame. And like, maybe that's a little bit off putting to some people. Like I know for me personally, like generally speaking, I like a little bit of rust on my movies. And so this one is, and I I thought whiplash was that, right. I thought whiplash was like, sort of like the sweat. This movie's like sweaty, gross cousin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then this one is, I, and I'm going to steal this from somebody. I, I don't know who it was that said it, but watching La La Land is like being friends with Anne Hathaway. <laughs> <laughs> just like, okay, so just like tone it down a little, a little shiny. bit. Yeah, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. like you're perfect. We know, like give it a rest. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I mean, I totally understand that. But then I also have heard a lot of criticisms about Gosling and Stone not being the greatest questions. singers. Have yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. Literally related to that exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I so before anybody gets too mad at me, I really enjoy Emma Stone and I really enjoy Ryan Gosling, like pretty much across the board. Mm -hmm. I also think that they act the hell out of this movie. I think they're like their performances as these two people are great. I don't understand why they were cast. (laughs) Like I'm honestly confused. Because, like, I was reading a little bit about it, and apparently Chazelle wanted this, like, Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy sort of feel. And I'm like, well, they definitely don't have that at all. Like, they barely made movies together, so that doesn't make any sense to me. And then they can't dance kind of at all. Like, they do fine. They do. They work really hard, and it looks great it like works well in the scene but like they can't they're not gene kelly they can't dance they both have and like two moves them, that they do well <laughs> yeah like and neither of them are strong singers like i'm not gonna say they can't sing because emma stone clearly can and ryan gosling is like doing his best in a way that like you know works as well as like any indie like folk singer type thing like none of those people necessarily have to have great voices it doesn't mean they can't sing or you can't enjoy it whatever but for yeah. this musical that's trying so hard to be this hollywood thing I was just like, I could not stop being confused by it because they're not good at the two things that all of those stars of those movies were great at. 
And I think that they're too famous and too hot in the moment. Like they're two of the biggest stars working today for it to be some sort of statement about like, oh no, we're specifically hiring these people that like don't have that background. So you want it to feel a little more real. And it's like, well, it's not going to feel real because they're f- so famous. Like yeah. they're so, so famous mm-hmm. uh, that I was just like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand why you're in this movie. I'm so confused, especially because like, and I'm not, I'm not picking on it too hard. Cause I'm really like a fan of a lot of the people that worked on this. So I don't think there's malicious intent behind it, but like, I think it's hard not to be as mildly offended that it's like, yeah, John Legend doesn't know anything about how jazz really works. Ryan Gosling's got to teach him. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm, I, I'll push back a little bit on that last point because I think there's there's something interesting about that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, there's one particular line that John Legend says to, John Legend's character says to Sebastian, uh, which is, you know, you idolize all of these people from these great jazz musicians from the past, right? They were all innovators. So how can you be an innovator if you're not, you know, really trying to, if you're just trying to be a traditionalist? Right. Um, yeah, and, I really like that. Uh, and I, I think that's, I think that's kind of where Chazelle really wants to come from, even if there's so much else uh, in the movie and in the movie's tones and in Sebastian's character that kind of muddies that a little bit. So maybe that's, maybe he didn't, uh, maybe Chazelle, I can see some of the problems that people are having with this idea that Gosling's kind of like a white savior for this uh, African American, almost strictly African American art form. And yeah, I totally understand that. But I do think that the relationship, his relationship with jazz and then that section in the middle of the film where you have him um, basically selling his soul uh, to be to be in a, a popular sort of jazz fusion <laughs> band. Um, oh my God. I think that's I think yeah. I think that's a little bit more interesting. I think I think that's I something that's being that. overlooked in the film, but I think it's it's one of the more interesting, complicated things. Yeah, I want to defend, like or clarify, I guess not defend, but uh, to say that it's not even I don't really have a problem with John Legend's character. Like, I don't have a problem with that, like, part of the story trying to be what they're getting at. Like, I have a problem with him hiring an extraordinarily talented musician for the role of the person that's not the main musician in the movie. And then hiring somebody that's, like, not particularly good at any of those other things to be your star. And I'm like, maybe they could have flip-flopped that or something. I don't know. I have had the thought of, of it's really how just based on like a like the weird dichotomy between somebody who is very good at like yeah. at least singing because like you know other musicals of the day would hire people who are more straight singers and be like they'll muddle their way through the acting part like Frank Sinatra is like not the world's greatest actor he's pretty good but like boy can sing so like we'll put him in his movie he's gonna sing for me um, we'll worry about that other stuff later or like vice versa but yeah like it was like seeing them together when I was already baffled by like. Gosling and Emma Stone as like, I don't know, I'm kind of getting away from it and I don't want to belabor the point. But I hope that kind of clarified it a little bit that it's not actually like the story itself. Like I thought that was pretty interesting and I liked mm. the two butting heads there and like, that. I think that's okay. But it was more just like these casting decisions where I was just yeah. like, but why? <laughs> I did kind of think like if how different or how interesting the film might be if John Legend or someone like John Legend was in that was in that main role, but I mean that's nothing we will ever know. So right, I don't right. think there's really any reason to, to really expand on that. But 
Um, John, I'll give you a chance to, to respond to Sarah. Uh, I think this is a really interesting question uh, and the casting of the two leads, uh, something we can probably talk about for a long time, but I want to make sure you get your point in. I liked it. <laughs> uh, no, I I, li- I thought they were great. Uh, I thought that uh, my gripe with it, actually, and it's a small one, um, that my wife thought was really stupid and probably doesn't like them bringing it up on a publicly listened to podcast. <laughs> um, but, like, it bothered me that we were supposed to take, believe that Emma Stone is playing somebody who can't act. Yeah. And that, like, she's in this audition, like, really early in the movie. It's one of the first scenes mm-hmm. we have with her. And she's, like, a, taking this phone call, and she's, like, starting out, and she's, like, real bubbly, and then it's, something turns, and, yeah, we don't, not privy to what the script says, the other line is going on. Um, mm-hmm. But she, like, her like, heart breaks all of a sudden, and she's crying, and then someone walks in and, like, takes a lunch order and disrupts the whole thing. Uh, but I was just like, this is damn good. Like, she nailed that audition, you know? And then yeah. Like, nah, I- nah. Yeah, I don't know if that's exactly the point either. I mean, no, it's not. <laughs> I never, I never, I mean, I never read the way it treats Mia as being a terrible actress. Right. I think it's it's more just to the question that there are dozens of Mias in Hollywood looking for the same break, and there's only one. Yeah, I agree with you there. And it, it, it might, it, I think it probably maybe over exaggerates it a little bit. Maybe not over exaggerates what the reality is, but. But when you have, like, the casting directors, like, not even looking up at her, like, while she's performing, doing her audition, maybe that would be the case. But it seems, I mean, it does seem kind of silly, right? Apparently, uh, that whole part is based on something that happened to Ryan Gosling. That he was doing an audition and know, you know, how lauded he is now. That somebody, they ordered lunch in the middle of it. And they're like, yeah, it's cool. You can keep going. It's fine. I just want to get, like, a ham sandwich. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I think, the, I think the film does a pretty good job of of sort of articulating that point that in in Hollywood when you're trying to be an actor, you can be as talented in the, in the world as anyone, but you just kind of need a little bit of luck. I think the way it, it the way the movie presents that little bit of luck is probably the worst thing in the movie. When yeah. you know, oh, yeah. the, the whole thing about how Mia is discovered, I think is just, is, is really kind of lazy and terrible, but I think the point kind of lies there. Uh, and I think, I think that's, I mean, it's not exactly a unique perspective, uh, in the way that Hollywood works, but I think it's, it's articulated pretty well, uh, in the film and sort of the same with Seb. I mean, Seb, Seb is obviously very, a very talented pianist, but that doesn't mean that he's going to be able to open up his, his own club easily and, and be a roaring success right away. It, it's a little bit more, you need a little bit more than talent and enthusiasm to be able to make it, which I think is a lot of where the sort of the strange blending of tones happens because in that, I mean, it's really what all that opening big opening number is about, you know, being knocked down on the ground, but then getting back up because it's another sunny day. And today is my day. I'm going to make that big break. I think that I think that that's uh, that dichotomy of of what the narrative is and the tone is sort of blending together is is part of the reason why that I think the film's narrative overall works, uh, even with some of those easy lazy hiccups that that it, that it goes through. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's one of my favorite movies of the year, but it is not a movie that is immune to my criticism. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Uh, it makes, it, 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 you know, makes them leap. I think when you have a, a movie this sort of big and broad, like, it's it's not working on perfect every cylinder. Right. But the highs are so don't high. don't care that much, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, transitioning a little bit, Stone and Gosling blocks for Oscar nominations, perhaps. Uh, Aaron, I think you were writing a little bit about this movie in terms of the Oscars coming up, which is sort of a change for us, but um, what do you think about La La Land? Is it like... I think it's going to win Best Picture, personally, uh, because I don't mm-hmm. know that there's anything else that like is a realistic... Uh, has a realistic chance in, in terms of the Academy's taste, and it's got mm-hmm. a lot of craft and, and acting, and, and kind of hits all those bases, but... What are you what are you seeing when you're looking at this? I, I would think from what you know, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I would think it's probably the favorite given what the Academy typically looks for. Like Sarah said, the artist won this picture. This is a very similar sort of hooray Hollywood kind of movie and, and the Academy typically loves those. Obsessed with themselves. And I, I think it'll do. I think it'll do really well in some of the technical categories as well. Cinematography, editing. You know, it may not win all of those. I mean, there are other there are other films that in those technical categories, you you never know. They they could they could um, uh, not win those, but I think they'll definitely be nominated. I think there is one other film this year that has a decent shot at winning Best Picture, and that's Moonlight. Part of my reasoning for thinking that is maybe a little cynical, mm. given and cynical in, in a strange way. But given the controversies that the Oscars had last year, given um, you know the the lack of uh, minority performers and, and minority writers, and I don't think there was any. Uh, there was a big, I can't re- recall the nominees, but the best pictures. I don't think any of them had. Uh, a majority minority cast or were a film that were targeted to to minorities so i think if you know and, and then there were some changes and some of the the bit the build up of you know who makes uh the academy so i think maybe if some of the academy voters are a little bit more conscious of that this year maybe they will uh choose to to really put their efforts towards moonlight and of course that that doesn't mean it's not a great movie. I think it is a great movie. I think it's one of the best of the year right up there with La La Land. Uh, and is will also do very well in some of the technical categories and writing and, and all of that. But I think it's probably one of those two um, at this point that might, uh, that that'll, will probably win Best Picture. But I would give the edge to La La Land, I think, for some of the history, historical contexts. Yeah, so I would... seems that way. Uh, I would give the inch to La La Land because the Academy sucks and (laughs) they they like things that make them look good. And so things that are like, yay, Hollywood, people getting their dreams is like more their cup of tea (laughs) than, and so like, I'm a little bit bitter because more, basically I am very worried, even though the Oscars don't matter, like they don't matter in a lot of ways, (laughs) but I, I genuinely think Moonlight is one of the most important movies definitely of the year. I think it's better than La La Land on every single level. I don't think it's even a question. Like Moonlight's the better movie, like technical skill wise, acting wise, story wise. And then just like the, the space that it exists within, like 
it's alone up there for LGBT movies about people of color that aren't obsessed with punishing those characters or inserting some sort of white savior or like it's like an it's not an AIDS story or something just some other way that could be (laughs) make it like more trite or make it more problematic like I just think it's this wonderful wonderful movie and I don't want the love for La La Land to kind of overshadow overshadow it I want it to do well because I want more people to be like, oh, I haven't heard of this. Maybe I'll watch it. Like, I want more people to see that movie because I think it matters more. I don't think it really matters if you see La La Land or not. Like, (laughs) it's a a fun movie, but, like, I don't think you're really missing anything if you don't see it. Like, you're not going to be, like, missing out on some piece of history or filmmaking that you haven't seen before you couldn't easily see elsewhere. Whereas I think, like I said, Moonlight just exists on a plane alone. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with that at all. Um... I could definitely see a scenario where maybe Chazelle wins Best Director, but Moonlight wins Best Picture. Um, I could see a scenario where maybe Moonlight wins over La La Land for... Oh, no, Moonlight's technically an adapted screenplay, I think, because it's based on a play that was never produced. It's a weird rule, but... Oh, that is weird, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess... I, so I guess they won't be up for, for the same screenplay award, but um, I could see you know Moonlight winning screenplay, you know winning director not winning best picture i can i can see sort of a mix on on all of those things i think that i think we're more or less away from academy awards that are just complete sweeps um i don't think we've seen many sweeps in in recent years and i Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of that just won't happen much anymore um unless there's just one film that just towers over everything else which we don't really have this year um I'm not worried about Moonlight not getting its due. I, I think it's winning a lot of the critical awards, you know, a lot of the, and I think it'll do well with the guilds too. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just so, don't want yeah. to like give best supporting actor to Mahershala and be like, we did it. Yeah. Because I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's the <laughs> oldest Academy move in the books. <laughs> uh, totally is. No, we, we totally gave it one. Or like, like give it give it screenplay because like you know we know this is a smart movie, but you know it's not a great film. It's not but that good, it's yeah. Movie. Let's not get crazy. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I like think the that... uh, Spike Jones rule. Yeah, yeah. Right. we'll yeah. give him screenplay, but we we're not going to give him anything else. Yeah, I mean, I could I could see it working out in a lot of different ways, which I think makes for film lovers. I think that makes this Oscars race kind of fun maybe it won't be so for um general audiences because i mean both of these movies have done really well but they're also sort of in that space where making 30 40 million dollars is doing really well you know um since they're they're both on you know la la land's more of a mid-budget movie moonlight's a very small budget movie um so they're both going to be very successful and i think well liked by general audiences but they're not the the big movies that, that people care about when we're talking about the Oscars. Um, you know, the mom types. That important mom, mom vote. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, uh, when I was home for Christmas, showed a bunch of screeners to uh, my parents. And mm-hmm. I always enjoyed doing this because then I can sort of like see like what the general consensus of is among a certain, uh, you know, a set yeah. of viewers. Yeah, well, what, what were the uh, what were the outcomes? I want to know this. Uh, they really liked uh, they really liked uh, Hell or High Water. 
Mm-hmm. They really Very liked sharp. the girl on the train, which is yeah. not yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the only uh, they loved Hidden Figures. That was probably their favorite that they watched. Okay. And uh, the only one that they really, really disliked was Jackie. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's, but, that that movie might do well come Oscar time too. Unfortunately, like, yeah, yeah. I didn't have a lot of land in time, so I wasn't able to share with them. And yeah, uh, and I to this day have not seen Moonlight, so uh, oh wow, okay. so I can't comment Get on that. On it. Uh, <laughs> hey, eight four. <laughs> I'm here. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of Jackie, I think that'll be one of the more interesting. Jackie and, and La La Land, I think that may be one of the more interesting races yeah. uh, for Best Actress. I haven't seen Jackie yet, but I'm really excited to. Yeah, oh, Jackie's my. Boy. I I didn't love it as much I know as John did, and some <laughs> other uh, online film critics did. Uh, that for a little while, that kind of seemed like the movie that people were really mm-hmm. putting on a pedestal uh, as as the movie of the year. Um, I probably should rewatch it. I liked it. I think it's it's a lot of really good craft, um, and I think Portman is really good too. You kind of have to get past her accent a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I think that could be one of the interesting races if they do decide to... Because Emma Stone hasn't won before. Natalie Portman has. Sometimes people think that that makes a difference. And I think they're both... You know, I think Emma Stone is really good. I... You know, and she sings. Maybe she isn't the best singer, but usually the Academy gives points for that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. maybe that'll help. I don't know. Um, that would be one of the more interesting. I think Gosling will be nominated, but I don't think he'll win. I think there are just other stronger contenders. Um, maybe Casey Tom Affleck, Hanks. I guess. Casey Affleck's probably the, the go-ahead the go um, favorite, but Gosling will probably be nominated. Do you think, here's a question for both of you guys, it's not entirely related to La La Land, but since we're on the subject, do you think Ryan Gosling's ever going to win an Oscar? Yes. Probably. Okay. We'll I do it, you know, DiCaprio style. <laughs> we'll get no. around to it. I don't think that he uh, is is going to uh, make the Revenant. No. Interesting. No, I don't. I don't see it. But I think I'd love to be proved wrong because I love the guy. Yeah. I guess if you're if if you're in the no camp, uh, I can see the argument that he's he's a little too weird. I think yeah. with some of the movies he's in and some of his performances, um, I think he's just—I think he's just too good. And if if he had never been nominated up to this point for anything, I would say, well, maybe they're just kind of overlooking him. But they've already given him recognition, and I think when that happens with a young actor or actress, you know, even if they have to get a couple of nominations before they win, they they typically will win. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I would I would put money on yes, he will at some right. point. And I think he can, I think he can probably age pretty well too. I think once he gets older, I think he's a good enough actor and uh, good looking enough that he you know he can be a Clooney in fifteen twenty years. You know? Yeah, yeah, I could see him winning for like a like almost like a comedic performance because he's very capable he's, of that. Also. You know what? He's 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 better this year in Nice Guys. That that's one of my favorite performances. <laughs> oh my god, of the year. Nice Guys was so good. <laughs> I didn't like that, uh, movie, but that's another conversation. <laughs> I. Yeah, I mean, I can see not liking the movie, but I think him and Russell Crowe are so good in that. And, and it's actually kind of funny. I, there are a few little sort of touches in his performance in La La Land that remind me of his performance in The Nice Guys. 
like I think there's like one or two like double takes he does in La La Land, which remind me of the the great bathroom stall scene uh, in <laughs> in The Nice Guys, where he's just kind of like trying to do ten things at once, uh, not succeeding in any of them. I think uh, I think with Nice Guys and and then with La La Land, he's he's showing he's got a, a pretty good amount of comedic range. Sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, he's he's super. He's Superman. Uh, he should play Superman. Aaron, I know you wanted to talk about the uh, La La Land ending. Um, yeah. Do that, do yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I guess I'll set this up. Um, so throughout this film, we have this romance between Mia and Seb where they are um, a lot of their partnership. A lot of what we see them talking about is following their dreams uh, Seb throughout the film is, is basically Mia's biggest supporter, even when he fails to make it to her one person show. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy who is saying she's great and she'll, she'll get everything maybe coming off a little naive, but that's kind of the person he is. Uh, and then Mia is their, their biggest argument throughout the film is, uh, after Seb has, has joined this musical act, uh, they're, hitting it big they're touring the country it could be he could be on tour for months uh and she sort of reminds him that you know this isn't really what you wanted to do with yourself uh you know you wanted to open this jazz club and 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 be your own sort of you know your own boss and and all this and and that really their biggest fight throughout the film is, is on this touching point of him not no longer really following his his dreams so at the end we we see that mia has made it big and then we get a five years later intertitle that happens, uh, and we kind of see where where these two characters end up. And I won't go, I won't say specifically where they end up, but I will say that uh, we see that they're no longer together. Mia ends up going to Sebastian's jazz club, and, and a very nice reveal. He's used this this logo that she created for him years ago, uh, and they see each other in the club. He starts to play one of the the themes of the film on on his piano and we get this extended flashback fantasy of how their life may have played differently if it weren't for one one moment uh really not the first time they had met but really their first their their first contact that if it had gone differently maybe how their life would have gone differently uh and then it ends sort of with this resignation that and I want to know what your guys' reading of it is that, that they're, they're no longer this sort of resignation that they're no longer together. Uh, and that's kind of just where the film ends. So first I, I want to get your guys' um, your reads on, on what these sort of last shots mean uh, for the characters, what we're supposed to think uh, and how, how the film leaves you emotionally. Um, so this was a moment where I think maybe other people might be sort of applauding its originality or shirking of the uh, musical script, except that it is following the end of Umbrellas of Cherbourg almost pretty directly, like, mm-hmm. which is this French musical that I ended up watching on a whim. It's really lovely. It's you, if you want, if you liked this movie and you don't care about subtitles, like you will like Umbrellas of Cherbourg, like is super colorful. It's great music. And just it's like literally this- all music. Yeah, this love story of these two young people that want to be together and for whatever, you know, life reasons, they're not. 
And the ending of that movie is like just super similar to La La Land. So for me, it was another moment of just like, yep, you did a good job referencing that other movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this is not, this is not different to me than that. So, but aside from that, like what I think it's trying to get at is like, uh, they both end in this way where what you thought would happen or maybe what you wanted to happen, which is this couple to be together doesn't, but there are all these little signifiers around it where like, yeah, there's like a bittersweetness, like, Oh, you know what we, we could have had this together, but instead it's like, they're happy. Like they don't have like a bad, sad life, like alone or miserable. It's like in, in La La Land, you know, they've achieved their dreams and like, yeah, it didn't work out, but they're, they're doing great. Like, it's just one of those like, Oh, sometimes life takes you in a funny direction kind of a thing, which I think is sort of a, a sweet way to end something that's so idealistic. That's like a little tiny, tiny <laughs> glimmer of like realism where it's just like, you know, you can't always count on, life like work the way you wanted to i mean i don't think we'll all end up with our faces on billboards or with our own jazz clubs <laughs> speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> oh when when an injection that i think is interesting and something i in the second the second time through the movie that you mentioned the billboard that with with mia's face on it um i think that's a really interesting touch because sort of a, a vein another vein throughout the film is sort of the death of cinema uh the death of movies um, you see movie theater close, you know, throughout the course of the film, of the film, uh, other things happening. But uh, Mia's old boyfriend's people, they're talking about, you know, how great it is to watch movies on phones or on TVs or whatever. Um, that mural replaces, the, I think it replaces the mural of, uh, it's sort of a, a painting of all of these um, uh, Hollywood icons like Chaplin, right. et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a, a really kind of interesting small touch about the 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 change uh, of cinema that Chazelle is sort of placing sporadically throughout the movie. But anyway, go on. Sorry, I wanted to interject that. I liked the, real quick, the guy who uh, was writing the story, the remake of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but from the perspective of the bears. Uh, bears, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I thought that the... Um, you know, I, I certainly was reminded of Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, so I appreciated that. Um, but I sort of felt like this is what happens when you get some distance from a relationship, and you're suddenly taken back to that place. And I don't, you know, it, it's hard to think of, like, how much uh, Mia and Seb have thought about each other in the five years between, you know, the sort of end of their story and, and this epilogue. But I sort of thought, like, maybe they hadn't pondered each other, you know, beyond the uh, the few months or so after their breakup, and then they're suddenly taken back to this place. And his mind immediately goes to, like, well, he, you know, you forget all the bad, but you remember all the good, um, because you're not in that moment anymore and here are all the things that I could have done differently if I was going to uh, if we were going to save this relationship um, and it's funny that he goes back to like the first time they, they meet because I don't feel like that would have made any real difference at all it's, it's more later but um, mm-hmm. I did like that cut a lot it was probably like one of my favorite moments in the movie was just that cut from the new club to the Christmas club uh, where, yeah. they, where they have that interaction um, beautiful yeah if I had a criticism of of this ending is that 
Uh, we only really see it from the perspective of Sebastian, and we don't see, you know, Mia's, uh, you know, sort of take on it at all, which is mm-hmm. differing from the beginning of the movie, where we see both of their takes on kind of how they mm-hmm. get to this this one meeting. And I would have liked to see her her sort of thought process, I guess, after seeing him for the first time in five years, especially now that she's married and has a kid, and sort of where's her where's her heart in that moment um because i don't think that the end the true ending really gives much away besides like all right good for you like see you later um <laughs> and so yeah. i really loved it i love the scene like out of context but i wish there was a little bit more context to it um i think that would have made it like really special that didn't really strike me that sort of fantasy sequence that it didn't particularly strike me that it was from sebastian's point of view it might not have been, but I just saw it that way because, like, he's playing and the yeah. camera just sort of, like, zooms in then on him and takes him back, and he's the first thing we see when we're back in time. Yeah, and, well, I guess it, it might even be that way because nothing of her life changes throughout the uh, the fantasy sequence outside of her now being with him, whereas... It's sort of an interesting touch, and I'm not exactly sure how to read it 100%, but in this sequence, he doesn't get his club, which that might be actually more tragic than them not being together, at least in my mind. Um, I think it's I think the way it plays that final scene is... is I like the... Pragma, uh, I think it I stumbled on that word, but I find it to be interestingly pragmatic, uh, in the way it looks at love and relationships. Right. Um, because I think so many Hollywood films and so many classic romances, if, you know, if, if there's a break at the end, it's this like most tragic thing. And I think umbrellas of Shortburg, even like when I see the end of that movie, it feels tragic to me. Like it's sad that they're not going to be together. Um, whereas in this, I, I don't feel that same tragedy. I, I feel that they have, use each other in in the best sorts of way to to accomplish their goals and to see out their dreams and that doesn't mean that they have to be in love or together to be happy or to fulfill those dreams um you know we most people have more relationships than one throughout their life and even in you know outside of you know abusive relationships and things like that just relationships that didn't work out i mean i think we all grow from those um you know it's it's not that we couldn't have fell in love and married and lived the rest of our lives with our first boyfriend or girlfriend um some people do but most people don't uh and that's 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 pretty okay i mean that's just not how the world works and and, and movies kind of tell us that that is how the world works more often than not. So I like that. That's where it ends. And it is, it is a little sad. It is a little bittersweet. Um, you know, the last looks that they give each other, you can really see that they still love each other and they, maybe they do wish things that had ended differently. Um, we also don't see their breakup really. Um, yeah. So that maybe that would change things. Like if we saw that they had, this terrible breakup, maybe we would read that ending differently. Or if we just see that, you know, she went to Paris to work on this movie, they just kind of drifted apart. That's what I assume happens. Um, 
maybe if we actually do see that, then maybe we reread that final scene differently. So I think that's an interesting omission from the film that they don't show us that um, and how that uh, may change our reading of the end. All right, guys. So since this is our sort of best of 2016 episode and we talked about La La Land, I thought we could spend just a few minutes kind of highlighting some of our other favorite films of 2016. I know both of you have brought up Moonlight. I mentioned Jackie. Um, Sarah, what are some other ones that you really loved from uh, last year? Uh, So this will sound like a joke, but it's not. (laughs) I I honestly think that like in my top, you know, top 10 or top whatever list, like immediately below Moonlight, I would put Swiss Army Man. (laughs) Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the subtitled, uh, farty Harry Potter corpse movie, mm-hmm. uh, was absolutely one of the, my favorite things that I saw this year. And it just completely blew me away for a movie that I wasn't really sure <laughs> what to expect because I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen Daniel Radcliffe play a corpse before, <laughs> alone, so gassy or so magical. And I just like I don't know. I, my brain melted. Like I had, not only did I have like such a great time, but I was just like, this is like really like meticulously well directed. And like these shots are like, they're not super simple. And like, they're trying to do some really interesting things. And like what this movie is like sort of trying to get at about just like people's connections being changed by technology and like trying to strip that away and like forming connections to people that are, on their surface, more or less, like, they're meaningless because they're not actually based on anything real. They're not based on conversations. They're just, like, based on photos that you saw or, like, the distance or whatever. Uh, And I just, like, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, I don't even know how else to talk about it. It's just, like, everybody needs to see that movie. It's very good. (laughs) I think the ending is terrible, but... That, that movie nope. is, is really great. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's an interesting movie. I feel like people, the defender, the people who love that movie, and I, I do really like that movie, um, were really hot on it when it came out, but like nobody's really talking about it anymore. Um, not that it would be in line for a lot of sort of the critics awards at the end of the year, but um, uh, I, I'm not, I haven't really heard of it. Of many people put that in their top 10 even when it came out i think people were really really high on it out of sundance and then when it got its theatrical release um that's good well, pick. I actually i saw a lot of i saw a lot more mixed reviews of it and then i yeah know, i mean it's, it's i mean people didn't it. see this movie really so like I, I don't think it's quite fair to say oh you're not hearing about it. it's like well a lot of people didn't go because it also wasn't it wasn't like a huge release and then it just sounds weird and so like i i, I think it was appealing to a super small sort of segment of the population but i yeah, still well, yeah i yeah. think it's in the, the echo chamber of the online online film critics that i talk with and and follow on twitter um people who love that movie really loved it it's kind of all i'm saying i guess i didn't see I it i did <laughs> <laughs> it, it's uh if you like michelle gondry i think you should definitely see it there's a lot of uh I think uh, the Daniels, the directors of it, I think they, mm-hmm. uh, I think they're Michelle Gondry fans from from their aesthetics. So I think if you like if you like Gondry, I think you'll you'll uh, like a lot of what Swiss Army Man has, and and definitely the uh, there's actually um, uh, a lot of great Jurassic Park references in that 
that would be too. I was a big fan of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's on my list, but I haven't got got to it yet. John, what are some of yours? So my number one of the year is OJ Made in America. I just thought that was sort of like the best thing that I saw this year, and and not coming out as television, huh? It's I'm. <laughs> You know, the director says that he intended it yeah. as a movie. It screened in theaters as a movie. It yeah. it premiered to the public on television. How but... was it screened in a theater? That's like it's like nine hours long. Uh, yeah, <laughs> seven and a half, I think. But yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, I I mean, I'm not. I counted that as television because of the way it was broken up. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where we want it, but we got into a big thing about semantics with like what qualifies as a movie. But I'm just like, when you start getting to like nine hours. <laughs> and distinct parts. I'm like, that's not. I don't know if I want to call that a movie anymore. Yeah. But yeah. uh, oh, holy shit! One of the best things I saw this year. But just you're not wrong on that account. Like it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, sure. like I didn't really care. Like I totally see like people wanting to classify it as TV, and and for a while I did. But when I started to see people placing it on their best films of the year list, I was like, fuck. Then so am I. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't fault you for that either. <laughs> um, so then, uh, so you know, Jackie is uh, is my favorite sort of more traditional movie that's only a hundred minutes, uh, but I thought that was just phenomenal and uh, is destined to be like a, I think a cult classic in a way um, that I wasn't expecting, and uh, it was also particularly resonant following the uh, presidential election um, in terms of sort of what it says about the legend building and myth making in terms of, of presidents and, and just people in general. And I thought that was really neat. Um, La La Land loved it. Uh, the lobster is another favorite of mine from this year. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think the first half of the lobster is probably the best movie of the year. Uh, I would probably maybe agree with you possibly yeah. perhaps. Um, not that the second half is bad, but no, it's so much better in the first half. There's, it's, yeah. there's, there's such a, break between the first half and second half and that first half is just so amazing um the the writing colin farrell's great uh the second and it just kind of loses a little bit of steam for me it's just not as it's just not as interesting that second half as the first half i agree um uh, I, it's funny though, like the film television blurred lines saying like, after I saw the lobster, the first thing I thought was like, I wish the first half of that movie was the series. Yeah. Oh God, that would be amazing. <laughs> it totally could be too. I mean, yeah. it may not be yeah. able to last forever, but that could be like a great, like 10 episode, like people coming in and out series like, yeah. on FX or something. Yeah. So cool. And then the only <laughs> yeah. other one I, I definitely, definitely want to mention because it's a really small movie that a lot of people probably haven't heard of is tower. And, oh, uh, yes. yeah, this is a, uh, animated documentary about the, um, shooting at the university of Texas in 1966, I think. And, um, it's so, it's done with a, a, like a mix of rotoscope animation and then archival footage and then, uh, talking head interviews. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just, I've never seen anything like it. It's just super interesting. Yeah. The, the really way takes it, it recreates. The way it recreates and retells an event that I think most people, at least maybe of our generation, don't really know about, yeah. uh, I think is pretty astounding. So that's that's my top five. Those are the movies that um, mm-hmm. I most appreciated. And, and like I said, I didn't see Moonlight. My list is really long, or Swiss Army Man, of the stuff that I haven't got a chance to catch up with. So it's going to be ever-changing, but 
those are the things yeah. that are striking me as of this day. Aaron, Aaron, how about you? Um, well, I haven't done my formal top 10 yet. Um, one of the publications that I write for, we, we posted a little later than, than most. Um, so mine's coming in about a month. So I still have some time. (laughs) Yeah. I still have some time to, to really kind of hammer down and think about what my top 10 films of the year are. Uh, and it may just be the way that I, I wasn't paying attention to my list, to making a list throughout the year, but at this point, I don't really have a clear number one, uh, which is atypical for me. I think usually there's there's one movie that, that really speaks out to me. Maybe there's two or three that I kind of have to decide what the number one is. But this is kind of a wide open chase for me this year. Um, I'll mention a couple that, I, that you guys haven't mentioned. Uh, Hell or High Water is definitely up there for me. I think it's just... It's just entertainment, you know? It's just like one of the most interestingly fun movies of the year. Um, great cast, great script, great sort of conceit and a lot of really great scenes. Um, it may not be as formally innovative as other films that are the best of the year, but in terms of just sheer entertainment, it's definitely up there. Uh, there are a couple of good horror movies. I always sort of gravitate toward smart horror movies and there were a couple good ones this year i really like the witch uh, which is uh just a gorgeously beautiful movie uh and not really scary but just creepy as all hell uh black philip is Uh. one of my favorite characters of the year uh i am one of my so i have two dogs and and one of when when i give them treats they go up on their hind legs you know to like try to get the treat and they kind of look like Black Phillip, so I was calling them Black Phillip for, <laughs> for months after uh, after that movie came out. Um, if you don't know, that's a sort of a New England set tale in the probably, what, the 17, late 17 or early 1700s? I'm not exactly sure. 1600. 1600, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Crucible era, sort of right. New England, uh, and it depicts a family uh, who may or may not be haunted by witches well they're definitely haunted by witches um but it kind of unravels in interesting ways by the end uh really great lead performance as well from uh i believe her name is anna taylor something or other mm-hmm. uh, who's a really good young actress uh, uh ralph Innenson, who i know as guy from the british office uh, <laughs> television series is the father in this movie and he's oh, like wow. He's like such an interesting patriarchal character, um, kind of a menacing figure, even though he's by far not not even close to the villain of the movie, but sort of this austere guy who who's kind of scary in his own right. Um, Green Room is another sort of horror movie that that uh, was really amazing this year and will definitely be near the top of my list. Um, Patrick Stewart is amazing as a Nazi. Uh, and Yelchin. <laughs> Uh, Anton Yelchin is well it's kind of funny too right because neo-nazis have been so much the narrative of the last three months of the year when the beginning of the year was a definitive neo-nazi movie that came out um kind of interesting in that in that way but uh Anton Yelchin one of his last films uh tragic uh great performance from him some of the like most gruesome gore effects uh in any movie ever 
um, and just a nonstop thrill ride. Jeremy Saulnier, it's his, his second feature, I believe. Yeah. He did uh, Blue, Ruin. Blue Ruin a couple years ago, which was one of my favorite movies that year. I don't know if this is quite as good as Blue Ruin, um, but that might just be because that movie was such an out-of-the-box surprise for me that I kind of was expecting Green Room to be great uh-huh. going into it, and it was. Um what else? I don't know. There were a lot of great movies this year. But I, I guess a, I had a couple more that I wanted to, to call out really oh, quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would definitely put The Invitation at the top of my list. That's a good one. I, I haven't seen loved that. that movie. It's on Netflix. So you can I watch know. it right now. Um, it is sort of riding the line between thriller and horror. Like it's a super tense movie. And then I just think it's, it's really, it's just so tight. Like it's just. Yeah. It doesn't ever let anything get too far away from itself. Like, it never gets, like, too weird. It never gets, like, like just, like, it just manages, like, it has, like, a thesis. It sticks close to it. And then the way it's just this beautifully crafted movie. And just, like, heads up warning, the main actor is not Tom Hardy. But I am <laughs> his it's... secret twin brother yes, with it's... long hair. And, like, yeah, y'all are twins. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then something that I was surprised was actually, uh, according to one of the lists I'm looking at, they're saying it counts for 2016, uh, Embrace of the Serpent. Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. That movie, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was, oh, my God. Uh, it was, <laughs> like, a, it was an Oscar nominee for foreign language film last year, mm-hmm. but didn't play in U.S. theaters until this year. Yes. yes. So yes, That's it, why it's it, kind of weird, because I saw it at a film it straddles the line last year. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then, like, it was one of my favorite things that I saw in 2015. Um, but it got wider release uh, in 2016. And it's just phenomenal. Like, I don't even know how to talk about what it's about. But it's just this, it's really great to see a movie that's exploring basically, like, the cultures and traditions and questions of, like, the grander scheme of the universe, like, mm-hmm. via, like, aboriginal peoples in south america that actually bothers to hire aboriginal <laughs> people south america like there's none of this like weird it's like no they got these actors and they're all phenomenal and there's just i don't know i don't even want to talk too much about it but like i it's think just, it's, it's super interesting yeah it's really beautiful black and white cinematography so i think it would make a great pair with the witch a double feature yeah totally oh, yeah, sort of Horror, uh, uh, historical, sort of very documented. Like both movies, I think were were taken from direct texts of their times. Mm-hmm. Um, both great black and white cinematography. Both a little bit creepy. Yeah, I think that's a good. That's a really good pairing. Cool. Yeah, and then um, the uh, the quick quick synopsis for Invitation because I sort of glossed over that is just a dinner party gone. Horribly awry. Yeah, and it's probably better. The, it's a wonderful you know subgenre. Yeah, yeah. The the better, the less you know about it, the better. I think for that exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll I'll throw out a few quick other ones. I, I think just things if you haven't seen, you got to see The Handmaiden. Yeah, so good. One of the one of the best of the year. Fine for my number one spot. I'm a I'm a I'm a long time Park Chan Wook acolyte. I guess. Uh, <laughs> You know, he, he's, he's most known for Old Boy. Uh, he did Stoker a few years ago. He returned back this, to South Korea uh, for The Handmaiden, which is just a twisty, crazy sort of double agent movie. 
set in like in 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 occupied and Japan occupied South Korea. Um, it's it's just a, a awesome awesome movie. Um, Hunt for the Wilder People, just fun. Um, Sing Street as well, just like fun. Turn your brain off, just like tap your toes and you know just just have have a good time kind of movies. Um, a few that I didn't see that I, I want to see and hopefully we'll see before my top 10, uh, Tony Erdman, which is getting a lot of love, yeah. uh, German film. Uh, I haven't seen Scorsese's newest yet, um, Silence. Uh, I haven't seen 20th Century Women yet, which I loved Mike Mills' last movie, Beginners. So I'm I looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Elle, which is hurting me because I love Verhoeven. And, and though I've, I've this is sort of a controversial, divisive movie. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it out uh, as well. All good stuff. Uh, yeah. There's lots more. Manchester by the Sea, no one said. Yeah, Another nobody one of my said. Favorites. Yeah. Loved it. Fantastic. Um, but I think it was like a sort of sneaky good movie year that uh, people were ready to write off sometime towards the end of the summer because the studio mm-hmm. movies this year were just such shit. But, yeah. Um, yeah, they really were. on the two strings. Yeah. Patterson. Love Patterson. Patterson. I love Patterson. My gosh. Edge of Seventeen. Wonderful. Was a great sort of sneaky movie. <laughs> um, the Wailing. It's another great horror I didn't movie. See that one. I missed a whole lot of stuff this year and had There's all this so other nonsense. Stuff. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, the nonsense like getting married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but go check out some good movies. We gave you a nice list to get started, and I know a number of those. The, all the A24s I think we mentioned are available on uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Um, mm-hmm. a, few a, lot, a lot of good stuff on Netflix. A lot of Netflix good stuff too. on Netflix. We'll, we'll, have a good, we'll have a good streaming uh, recommendations 2016 yeah. uh, Absolutely. Uh, piece this week. So. Um, so I think that just about wraps up uh, things on our La La Land slash best of 2016 episode. And uh, we thank you for listening. You can, of course, um, check out all of our writings on La La Land and other movies at thecinessential.com. Aaron, do you want to give a quick preview of the next few weeks? Sure. Um, next week we will be doing uh, an, a movie that actually has gotten a re-release uh, restoration or re-release recently uh, Japanese film uh, Tampopo uh, which is a great food movie from Japan uh, the, the mid to late 80s uh, I believe it was the first movie that I saw in my first film class in college um, but it wasn't my pick it was somebody else's pick but I, I'm really <laughs> excited to, to revisit it and to, to talk about it um, then the week after we'll be we'll be doing uh, the African Queen, uh, the classic John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, uh, strolling down a river in Africa uh, on on a little boat. Uh, so that's another good one to look out for. Super, and um, you can check out us on Twitter at the Sin Essential to see all of our writings and postings and new podcasts and et cetera, et cetera. If you'd like to. Uh, subscribe to the podcast feed in iTunes, you can do so. Just search for This Is Essential. Give us a review while you're there. Five stars would be much appreciated. It'll help other people discover and enjoy the podcast. And uh, at the beginning of the year, we'd like to wish you all a wonderful 2017. It certainly should be an interesting one. Uh, but uh, we'll be here uh, talking about movies, mm. as always. Yeah. And, uh, we got the movies. Yes, yes, indeed. So uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.